right, thank you, choir. Um, welcome to Woodside Community Church. Um, kids, this time you are dismissed um, to the back or the side or whichever way you go. Um, thank you for, for joining us. Um, enjoy um, Sunday school. Uh, I want to say a special welcome um, to you guys. We're glad you're here um, at Woodside Community Church. It's the fall, right? It just feels like fall this morning, doesn't it? I'm so excited. Um, fall, football, all these things. Um, I can't. I can't wait. Um, so very, very glad uh, to be with you all here um, this morning. Uh, we, we take very seriously uh, here at Woodside Community Church uh, the privilege that we have every Sunday of opening up and studying uh, God's Word. Right? We believe that the Bible, this book, contains the very words of God. He inspired it. He works through it in the world. Um, through it, He reveals Himself to us. He, he speaks to us through it. Right? In it are contained the very words of life. Right? Salvation is found in these pages and in nowhere else. Right? Thus, we, we take the reading and the preaching of the Word very seriously. Right? It's at the center of our worship service. I was just noticing the time. So we're doing good. I've got like an hour I can preach here. Right? You guys are in luck. I can just go on and on and on. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm all excited juiced up and ready to go. But this, this is not a time about me. Right? This is not a time about the preacher of the word, um, but about the one to whom the word points. Right? This time is not about what I have to say, but what about God has to say to us through his word. Right? This, is, this is also a time that's not about what you want to hear, um, but about what you need to hear from God's word. And that's why we preach slowly, uh, quickly, but slowly. I talk quickly, but we preach slowly um, through books of the Bible, verse by verse. If salvation belongs to the Lord, if it is through faith, and if that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word, there's nothing more important than this time right now. Right? There's nothing more important um, than the Word and the preaching of it. So we read it, um, and we ask God, and we beg Him to, to work in us through it, right? So take out, with that said, your copy of God's Word and begin turning to Galatians chapter 2. And I want to specifically challenge you this morning to actually do that, right? Many of you don't, right? It's up to you. It's fine. I can't make you do it. It's not like a membership requirement or, or something. But if this time is about the Word, you should look at it. You should read it. Right? If you're not, then I, well, you know, I can go here making stuff up. Well, then the Bible says that you should give your pastor tons and tons of money. You know, so if you're not looking at the Bible, you don't know. Um, so follow along in the Word. Read the Bible. See, um, check what I'm saying and make sure that it is coming from there. Right? Listen, most Christians just aren't reading the Word throughout the week. That's just a fact uh, that we know from, from many, many studies. So at least be reading it here this morning. Right? There's life in those words. Right? I'm begging you uh, to read them. Today we have just a few short verses in Galatians chapter 2, uh, four verses, 11 through 14. You can find that on page 973 if you're looking in the Pew Bible. So now you have no excuse to not be looking by. There's a Pew Bible sitting right in front of you, right? Just, just turn to it. I'm trying to guilt you and impress you. It's, it's good for you. Um, just do it. So it's a short little passage of, of four verses, but I don't want you to let its brevity um, fool you. This is one of the most dramatic episodes um, in the New Testament. This, this story, though short, is truly a clash of titans. In the early church, there were two main figures. The book of Acts is divided by those two figures. Right, The first half of Acts is all about Peter. The second half of Acts is all about Paul. 
right? Well, now we have those two men, right? the, the main figures in the early church. Um, we're going to read them now coming um, to blows, um, in a sense. We don't know. There's a, there's a great conflict between the two, a great confrontation between Peter and Paul this morning. And just like with last week, there is a whole lot on the line here. Right? These stakes could not be higher. Remember last week, we focused on unity. We looked at how um, Paul cared desperately uh, for it, and he went to these great lengths to preserve that gospel unity. And he did that by traveling down and kind of having this cordial sit-down privately with the apostles. But here, we are going to see Paul very publicly confront and call out one of those same apostles. Why? Why is Paul, uh, why is he so hot? Why is he so quick to confront here? Well, it's because the gospel is again at risk. Remember, that's what this book is about. Galatians is about the gospel. It is about grace. Paul is writing this into a context, this, this book, uh, this letter, into a context where the churches are in danger of losing the gospel. Remember, Paul has come in, planted, and started a church. He's gone on to other churches to keep doing his thing. And these false teachers come in after him. They've, they've shown up. They're attacking Paul's authority. They're, they're attacking his message, saying, hey, don't listen to this guy. Right? He's, he's not even one of the twelve. He didn't even know or, or live with or travel with Jesus. He's, no, he, he's secondary. He's inferior. And his message is incomplete. Listen to us, right? We're, we're coming from Jerusalem. We're coming from the Twelve. We're going to tell you the whole story. And these guys were teaching a message of Jesus plus something else. Yes, salvation was, was by God's work, plus a little bit of your work on top of that. Right? Remember, we, just the tone in this letter, Paul is angry. Right? They think last week the grammar was so bad because Paul was so angry that he's just like quickly kind of jotting off and getting this letter out as quick as he can to get it to the Galatians because he's so mad. Right? He knows how deadly any message besides the pure gospel of God's free grace was. Right? So these first two chapters are our history. They are biography about Paul. They're, they're Paul kind of affirming, defending himself, affirming the divine origin of his message, right? Christ revealed it to him, he says. I didn't get it from these apostles. And he's affirming his independency from those apostles. Right? And the last way, this is the end of the biography section. Right? We start getting into some heavy theology. I'm starting next week. But the last way that he kind of defends himself um, this week is by saying, right, listen, I'm not inferior to these apostles. Look, do you remember back then a couple years ago when I publicly rebuked and confronted Peter, right? We are on the, we're both apostles. My message is independent. My message is the gospel. Listen to it. All right, so this morning, though, we're going to do it a little bit differently. We spend a whole lot of time um, talking about what the gospel is, and we will always do that, and we will continue to do that um, in every um, sermon. But this week, we're going to look a little bit more about not what the gospel is, but how it operates in our lives, right? Not what it is, but what the gospel does. Uh, that's the point, uh, the focus here of these few verses. This passage is going to show us that our practice must be consistent with our profession, right? Peter's was not, and that's why Paul calls him out, right? So three um, points uh, for us this morning from this passage, and yes, there's alliteration again. Get over it. It's, it's good. You're going to remember it, right? Here's, here's your alliteration this morning. It is even the faithful can fall. Right? So we're going to see very clearly from Peter. But then we're going to see that the, though we can fall, 
right? If we are the faithful, that fall will never be final. Why? Because true faith, rooted in God's grace, always produces fruit. That's, that's where we're going. The faithful can fall. It'll never be final. Because by God's grace, true faith produces fruit. All right, so look down to your copy of the Word. Um, Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read just verses 11 through 14. This is the Word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's go to the Lord in prayer um, before we begin. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Um, Father, we love your word and we want to love it more. Uh, we want to cherish it. Uh, we want uh, to, to be in it uh, regularly. We want it to work in our lives. Um, Father, there's nothing wrong with your word, um, but there is something wrong with our hearts. Um, so I ask that your spirit would now do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I ask that you would do for me, do through me um, what I cannot do on my own, um, Lord. So I ask that your spirit would work and apply these truths to our hearts. Um, show us our sin. Um, show us our proclivity uh, to fall. Um, but show us even more clearly uh, your great grace and mercy um, for your fallen faithful. Father, we want uh, to know you better. We want to understand your gospel better. We want to understand ourselves better. Um, Bob, not just so that we can know things, but Father, so that in better knowing we can better worship and honor and praise you. Father, that's the goal. We pray that you would get all the glory here this morning. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there's clearly a lot of overlap um, between this week's passage and last week's passage. If you were here last week, we talked about um, culture and unity and all of that, and that's still here um, in these verses as well. But I want to focus our time this morning on verse 14. Right? Here, here's the heart. Here's the key uh, to the passage. Their conduct was not in step with the gospel. Right? Their conduct did not correspond with their confession. Their practice differed from their profession. And that's why um, Paul um, goes so strongly at Peter in these verses. So let, let's talk briefly. Let, let's contextualize ourselves and figure out um, what's going on here. Right? Well, what's, what's the big issue? Years ago uh, in the South, there was a man named Clarence Jordan. Um, you shouldn't have heard of him. Um, but he wrote what is referred to now as the Cotton Patch Bible. It's really interesting. Um, he doesn't claim um, that it's an actual translation of the Bible. Right? It's, it's a version, a very loosely translated version uh, at that. What he did is he took the New Testament and he contextualized it into the old American South. It's really fascinating. right? Jew and Gentile became um, white and Negro. Right? Now, so this isn't inspired in inerrant scripture, right? This is just him kind of having some fun with the text and saying, this is what this would be like if, if this was happening in, in this day and age, right? So don't use that version of the Bible, please, for your scripture memory and your Bible study. But, but it's still really interesting um, to look at. And I think it's really interesting what he does with this passage because it can, this could kind of help us understand some of the, the cultural and some of the racial overtones and tensions of what was going on here um, in Antioch. Listen to how he um, interprets and changes and translates this passage. 
He says, but in spite of all this, when Rock, that's Peter, when Rock came to Albany, I had to rebuke him to his face because he was clearly in error. For before the committee appointed by Jim arrived, he was eating with Negroes. But when they came, he shrank back and he segregated himself because he was afraid of the whites. He even got the rest of the white liberals to play the hypocrite with him so that even Barney was carried away by their hypocrisy. Right? I think that helps ca capture some of the tension. Right? There was, this was racially motivated. This was culturally motivated and, and religiously motivated as well. He was one group separating himself, themselves, from this other group because of differences and because of, ah, I'll eat with you. Yeah, that's good. Oh, wait, now that these people have showed up, mm, sorry, never mind. Uh, I'm going to separate and pull back and not eat with you. That's what Peter um, was doing. Why? Why is that what he was doing? First, you've got to remember that, that mealtime and sharing a meal was significantly more meaningful back then than it is today. Right? We just crowd around a TV and have a slice of pizza and, and hang out. No, like, mealtimes were sacred uh, to the Jewish people. Right? Listen to what one guy says. He says, in Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For by eating the piece of the broken bread, everyone shares in the same blessing um, that that meal brings. And so it's nowhere written in the Old Testament or anywhere in the Bible, but eventually, kind of over time, probably under the Pharisees, it got to the point where uh, no Jew was allowed to have table fellowship uh, with anyone outside of the covenant. Right? Jews were forbidden. They, they could not eat with Gentiles. And this obviously raises a problem for the early church, doesn't it? Right? Well, how are Jews and Gentiles supposed to relate? Right? These verses are this kind of very serious clash of culture. This is a, a collision between two ways of being Christian. And it raises for us kind of the ever-present question of how does Christ relate to our culture? Right? What's the relationship between Christ and culture? Right? So because here again we see that the unity of the church and the integrity of the gospel are on the line. And Paul on one side finds himself at odds with Peter who has been drawn back and put him on the other side. And it's significant because you know, Peter was the rock, right? He, he's the guy. He, he's the leader of the twelve. And he, Paul says very simply, is being a hypocrite. It's not that he didn't understand or he simply made a mistake. No, the problem is that precisely he did understand and he acted contrary to that understanding. God had specifically revealed to Peter how things were to be and how he and the fellow Jews were to relate to the Gentiles, and Peter was rejecting that. Flip just a few pages over to your left to Acts chapter 10, and we'll see this um, very specifically. Peter knows better. In Acts chapter 10, Peter, he's up on a rooftop praying. That's what they used their rooftops for. For lots of things on back then. So he's up there praying. All right, he, he's hungry. I've never been praying long enough to where I was like, oh, I'm really hungry. And Peter was better. He was up there a long time praying. He, he realizes he's hungry. And so God then gives him this very weird but very significantly important um, vision. Look in verse 11 of Acts chapter 10. Here's the vision starts. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheep descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common 
or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. Well, thank God that, that vision happened, right? There were, there were pigs in that sheet. <laughs> that was a very good news for the rest of us. There was delicious bacon contained in that sheet. We can eat that today, right? We can even now eat um, pig tongues and feet today, right? I, I'm not there yet, but Edwin and Menzie and Joseph, they're, they're trying to get me, and I'm, I'm working on it. I'm trying to, to man up and get there. But listen, we can enjoy and eat those things because of this vision and what it represents, that Christ has come and he has fulfilled the purpose of the entire ceremonial law. Right? These things no longer um, are required of us to be in fellowship with God. That's why Christ came. He, he fulfilled the purpose of those laws. Those things were meant to, to set apart the Jewish people to point them to their need for a Savior. Now that the Savior had come, those laws were no longer in play, so let them eat pork, right? That's we we can, and it's wonderful. You know the, the summary of, if you want to memorize Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if I told you this, you can't remember the order, it's go eat pork chops, right? That's it's kind of a summary if you want to remember the order, right? That's the heart of the issue here, obviously, no. It's obviously more than that. But the point is, these laws have been fulfilled by Christ, and, and God is very clearly and specifically revealing to Peter that this has happened, and he is now free um, to partake and to eat. He's free from these laws. And he drives home further the implication of the fulfillment of those laws in the rest of chapter 11. There's this, there's this Gentile, this, this Italian soldier, this centurion named Cornelius. And God comes to Cornelius and tells him to go and find Peter. So he sends some men and, and those guys go and they bring Peter um, back to him. And look at what Peter says to him in verse 25. He says, you yourselves, talking to the Gentiles, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Right? That's why these guys that come from Jerusalem are so scandalized by what Peter is doing. It was illegal. It was unlawful for them to even eat or enter a room. That's why they wouldn't go in with Pilate for the trial of Jesus. They could not go into the same room or have fellowship with the Gentiles. Right? That made them unclean. All right? And then look at what Peter says next. He says, But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He says, This is what I used to believe. This is what we taught. Here is what God has very clearly revealed to me. So he then preaches to Cornelius. Um, he and his family are saved. The Holy Spirit has confirmation to sins um, on them. They are saved just the same way as the Jews, Gentiles and Jews. And this is just old hat, and we're so familiar, like, obviously, but this was revolutionary to the early church. This was a huge deal. So Paul goes back to the early church in chapter 11, the next chapter in verse 17, and he reports what happened, saying, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Right? So it was specifically through Peter that God had made clear that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile had been broken down. God said, do not consider them unclean. And then he demonstrated that to Peter by saving the Gentile. So Peter, he knew all this, right? He, he witnessed all this firsthand. He preached and argued and defended this. And in our verse 12, at the beginning, he was practicing this. It says he was eating with the Gentiles. 
right? So that's, that's remarkable in and of itself, right? Peter was there. Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. Peter was doing it. Listen, maybe he was even partaking of the great blessing of, of pork, right? He, he's probably there gnawing on some bacon, and the guys walk in, and they're, just, they're, they're scandalized, right? And so once these guys show up, Peter completely changes his tune. And these guys come in and they change everything. Paul refers to them at the end of verse 12 as the circumcision party. Now, keep in mind that these guys are the exact same guys, or the exact same type of guys, that Paul is dealing with um, in the churches in Galatia. Right? This letter is about these same men doing this same thing. This was the circumcision party. They taught, you need Jesus, you need His grace, you need His faith, but you've got to also do something as well. You've got to keep the law. You've got to be circumcised. Um, eat according to these dietary restrictions. Separate yourselves from the Gentiles. And so when Peter, uh, when they showed up, Peter feels the pressure and he completely and seemingly quickly caves. God had specifically revealed to him and shown him that the gospel was for the Gentiles. That they were clean just as, and just as much a part of Israel as the ethnic Jews. He knew that. But out of fear, out of peer pressure, he, he separated himself from them. Peter fell. And he fell greatly. And he fell publicly. But as you think about it, this really isn't anything that new for Peter, is it? Right? It seems to be almost the norm for Peter. We have three examples um, from the Gospels of Peter doing something similar to this. In Mark 8, Peter's the first one to confess Jesus as the Christ. It's, it's remarkable. That's, that's amazing. It's been revealed to him. He gets it. What's the very next thing he does? Well, he rebukes Jesus for Jesus' teaching about the cross. And then Jesus turns right back around with some of the strongest language that he uses and says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, he was up and he fell quickly. In Matthew 14, Peter, amazingly, he's the only one, he gets out of the boat and he walks on the water with Jesus. But once he looks around, once he's faced with his circumstances and the pressure from the storm, right, just as he is faced with here in, in Antioch, he once again crumbles and sinks. And then worst of all, after emphatically telling Jesus, if I must die with you, I will not deny you, the next thing that he does is he abandons Jesus. And when this nice little 12-year-old servant girl kind of says, hey, you know this guy, don't you? He panics and he completely denies even knowing Christ. So you add this here in Galatians 2, and we have four separate times that Peter falls very, very significantly. Even mature Christians can fall. Even the faithful fall. But why? Have you ever, have you ever wondered about this? Why do, do Christians fall? It's a fascinating question. If God saved us, if He's the one that does it, if He has brought us from death to life, if the old has passed away, behold, the new has come, then why do Christians still fall? Right? If I've regularly been making the case that God is sovereign, that, that He is in control of everything, that, that what He um, wants happens, and again, that's simply what the Bible teaches, then, then why does God choose to leave us with this indwelling sin and this tendency to fall? Why did God here ordain that Peter would stumble and fall so often? Why does he allow us to do it so often? you have an answer for that question? Because it's really important. You should think through it. And I think um, no one has done a better job uh, thinking through that for us um, than John Newton, right? the author of 
Amazing Grace. I'm on a Newton kick a lot lately, so you're going to keep hearing um, a lot um, from John Newton. He even wrote in one of his letters, and he titled it, The Advantages of Remaining Sin. Are you comfortable with that title? Right? It's a little like, wait a second. John, um, Amazing Grace is wonderful. That's a good song, but what are you talking about, right? The, the advantages of remaining sin. What do you think about that? Because think, if, if God is sovereign, yet we remain sinners after salvation, there must be a reason why he has made it that way. There's nothing that says God could not just immediately forgive us and reconcile us, sin gone and we don't have to deal with it anymore. But he allows that to persist. Why? Listen, listen to what Newton says in this letter. He says, God would not suffer sin to remain in them if he did not purpose to overrule it for the fuller manifestation of the glory of his grace and wisdom and for the making of his salvation more precious to their souls. So first, by allowing us to fall, God makes his salvation more valuable and more precious to us. And then by saving us, even when we fall like this, he makes himself even more glorious and impressive. Newton keeps writing elsewhere. He says, by these experiences, the believer is weaned more from self and taught more highly to prize and more absolutely rely on him. I love this. The more vile we are in our own eyes, the more precious he will be to us. And a deep, repeated sense of the evil of our own hearts is necessary to preclude all boasting and to make us willing to give the whole glory of our salvation where it is due. Man, that is just brilliantly insightful and it really kind of helped me um, think through and figure some things out. Right? God has a purpose for, and he can even overrule and use this great fall of Peter for his good, and he can do the same thing for you as well. Right? Newton very astutely points out that God is allowing these things because we are so much more sinful than we can even begin to realize. And so God uses these sins and these symbols to make us painfully aware of that sin. And by doing so, he's making us more and more aware of our depravity, which slowly makes us less and less impressed with ourselves and makes us less dependent on ourselves as we learn that the only good that we have is in him. And our only hope is to more and more rely on him. So in a sense, it is actually grace um, what God is doing here. Yes, Peter has sinned and he is responsible um, for that and it is terrible that he has sinned, but God can overrule that and overwork that to bring about Peter's good. Right? He is trying to break Peter of something that Peter is not yet aware. And apparently Peter needed that lesson repeatedly and we need it um, repeatedly as well. Well, right, so very clearly we see, uh, quite simply, that even the faithful can fall. But we have this great comfort that if we are His, nothing can then separate us from Him because He is working everything, even these sins, even these stumbles out for our good and His glory. Yes, the faithful can fall, and we have that promise here that that fall will never be final. Because if you think about it, we've got just four verses. Paul, Paul doesn't give us a whole lot of detail here. Right? I desperately want to know what happened. There's a few things that if I could see it, that's one of the ones I want to see. This would be it. Like what was the context? Right? Were they at like a, a potluck? Was it in the middle of a church service? Um, how did Peter respond? I just want to know. Like, did they come to blows? Like, did Peter deny it? Did he, 
what happened? Uh, we, we don't know. He, he doesn't tell us. Um, we don't know the resolution of this confrontation specifically here. But we can know from elsewhere in Scripture that, that Paul was right and that Peter eventually would at least acknowledge that and repent of his sin. Right? Peter had fallen and repented before, and he does so here again. All right, so listen to Peter's words. We're back in Acts now, Acts chapter 15. Right, Acts 15 takes place, we're not sure exactly how long, but sometime after this event. It could have just been a year or so. It could have been a couple years. But Peter specifically speaks on this subject in Acts chapter 15. He's, he has clearly come around. Right, we're at the Jerusalem council here, and that council determined once and for all, the issue um, that they were dealing with um, in this conflict. Listen to what Peter says himself in Acts chapter 15, verse 7. He says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Man, right? That is a complete 180. That is, that is repentance, right? Paul, Peter, has clearly come around. And, and in his own letters testify to that as well. In 2 Peter 2, 15, he, he refers to Paul as his beloved brother. And so whatever happened right at that confrontation, at some point, there was reconciliation and there was restoration. Right? Peter knew the gospel. He preached the gospel. He, he just slipped up momentarily. So there was eventually repentance and restoration. And I want to belabor this point um, for a moment um, out of my own fear that there may be someone sitting in here listening to the very true and the very important truth that even great men and women of the faith, even the maturest of believers, can stumble and fall at times in their life. Right? What, what a great comfort Peter is to, to those of us um, who likewise struggle. Right? I can see Peter and say, man, there's, there's even hope for me. Right? So some of you need to be comforted with, with the great truth that God's grace is infinitely bigger than your sin. But... For some of you in here, the last thing you need um, is to be comforted and encouraged um, with where you are right now in your sin. Right? You need to be disturbed and warned and shaken from your slumber. Yes, Peter fell, but that fall was not final. Yes, we all fall, but if we are in Christ, that fall will never be final. We just read 1 John uh, chapter 1. I've been reading it um, through it this week. Uh, it's just it's a great um, book. I would challenge you to read through it because it's a very jarring um, book. It says many things that will really kind of get your attention and kind of, wait a second, well, what does that mean? It will upset you a little bit. Let me just read you. This could be the wake up that many of us need. Here's just a few verses um, from the book of 1 John. We read one of them. If we say we have fellowship with him um, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Man, right? How about chapter 3, verse 6? No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him 
or known him. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Man, those are, those are heavy, heavy words, right? These are words that the, the easy believism of the American church often just tries to ignore, right? Are you making a practice of sinning? Well, John says, you're of the devil. Uh, are you practicing righteousness? If John, if not, John says, you're not of God. And again, guys, these aren't my words. I'm not making this up. I'm just reading to you what the text says. In the Gospels, if you read through them, you'll notice Jesus spends a whole lot more time challenging and upsetting the falsely secure than he does comforting and consoling the insecure. Yes, yes, we all sin. Yes, there is grace upon grace to cover all of that sin, and praise God that there is. But there is a difference between sinning and making a practice of sinning. We all sin. Peter, Paul, I do it. Right? But I'm more concerned right now with the general pattern and direction of your life. Right? Is, it, is it Godward or is it selfward? Is there a continual and regular pattern of sin in your life? Is it so deeply rooted and habitual in your life that you've almost gotten to the point of indifference toward it? Right? Are you at least waging war against your sin and progressing, however slowly it may be? Or have you given up the fight? Because listen, if that's the case, then, then you could be in great danger. Do not presume um, upon the mercy and the grace of God. A life of continual and unrepentant sin is an indication that there is no spiritual life. One of my favorite pastors, Kevin DeYoung, recently wrote in a book, he, he writes this, he says, no matter what we profess, if you show disregard for Christ by giving yourself over to sin impenitently and habitually, then heaven is not your home. Yes, Peter fell. Yes, we all can fall and fall greatly. But I do not want that fact to be a comfort to you who may be just kind of stuck in this repeated pattern of habitual sin with no desire to get out. No, I want this to be a great warning to you. This is important. Okay, so you've sinned. Has there been any sort of repentance and restoration? Are you at least broken by that sin? Do you at least hate that sin? Does that sin at least drive you to the mercy and the grace um, at the cross? Are you confessing that sin and taking steps to fight it? Listen, here's one of the, the number one signs. Here's where I'm, I'm good if you're here. Right? Is there at least a battle raging within you over that sin? Right? Uh, that to me, uh, good. Uh, that's, a, that's a wonderfully healthy sign. It's when that battle's not there, uh, when there's the, the apathy and there's not even a recognition of the sin, that's when I'm really, really concerned. Right? Are you warring against your sin? Are you broken and disturbed and bothered by that sin? Are you calling out to God and begging for Him to, to step in and do something for you? Right? That's, that's a really good sign. But if, if that's not happening, right, you, you should be concerned. The Bible, it just simply, it has a lot to say about the importance of obedience and holiness. And I think that largely we just, we ignore it um, today. Jesus says, if you love him, you will obey his commands. It's that simple, right? It's just, there's no way around it. If you're not doing that, then the implication is that you do not love him. 
Hebrews 12, 14 says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Right? Are you making any sort of effort toward obedience and holiness, no matter how small or how frail that effort may be? Is your life marked by a concern for the things that God is concerned with? Or, or would you say that you are probably more concerned with the things of the world? Right? What, what is your life telling you? Does your practice match your profession? Yes, yes, the faithful fall. We, we all do. By God's grace, though, that, that fall will never be final. And that brings us uh, then to our kind of the main point of the passage. Yes, we, we know that though the faithful may fall, right? Though um, that fall will never be final, the reason that fall will never be final is because, by God's grace, true faith always produces fruit. Practice must match profession. Paul confronts Peter because of verse 14. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And that statement has a hugely important implication for us. And that implication is that the gospel demands a certain lifestyle. Right? Gospel belief demands gospel behavior. There is a way to act and to live that is in line with the gospel, and thus there is also a way to act and to live that is out of line with the gospel. And that living or walking or doing or whatever you want to call it, it is extremely important. Listen, this, this is going to sound terribly wrong and possibly heretical, but, but here it goes anyways. Um, it's not, but just hear me out. Right? Listen, it is not enough to just believe the gospel. You hear me? It is not enough to just believe the gospel. Right? We've got to apply the gospel. We've got to trust the gospel. We've got to live the gospel. Right? And don't take my word for something crazy like that. Right? This is all James is saying in James chapter 2. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? James is saying it is not enough to just have faith. It is not enough to just believe the gospel. He says, don't believe me? Well, he keeps going. He says, you believe? Oh, it's good. All right, you're doing well. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. Faith apart from works is dead. Guys, listen, the demons believe. Right? They know the gospel. They know the content of it. They know that it's true. Right? That's, everyone's got that. That's not true saving faith. That's something different. They hate the gospel. They're not living it or trusting it or, or applying it. So just knowing it and just knowing that it's true is not faith. Remember, uh, I use it all the time. Saving faith is those three things. K-A-T. I'm going to drill it into your head. It is knowledge of the gospel. Who counts with a pinky first? It is knowledge of the gospel. It is assent to the truth of the gospel. And then it is the trust in that gospel. Without that trust, until there has been actual trust in it, there has been no salvation. And all James is saying here is that real truth, real faith, always demonstrates itself in works in some way or another. True faith always produces fruit. If there is no fruit, there simply is no faith. It's, it's that simple. So what we do demonstrates what we actually trust. Right? Our behavior betrays our belief. Our lives prove our profession. If we say that we believe in Jesus and, we find, and that we follow Jesus, um, but then we live and act completely 
contrary to his teaching than are liars. It's that simple. My, my um, PhD advisor back in school, ethics, he taught ethics, and he used what he referred to as his, his ethical formula um, to make this point. I think I used it here a real long time ago, but you've all forgotten it, and I'm going to remind you. This is his ethical formula. This is how he explains this. He says, you take stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. Right, one more time. Stated belief plus actual practice equals your actual belief. Right, you follow that? He's saying what you say you believe plus what you actually do demonstrates what you actually believe. Right? Just saying you believe one thing, but then doing the exact opposite proves that you're not actually believing um, what you are claiming to believe. That's what's happening here in this passage. Right? Peter is not in step with the gospel. The King James says that Peter was not walking according to the truth of the gospel. I really like that. And Paul has a whole lot to say um, throughout his letters about our walk and about its importance. In Ephesians 4.1, he writes, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Colossians 1.10, he writes, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Listen, if you just want to do a kind of little spiritual self-check or inventory tonight, go sit down with Colossians 1 verse 10 and just ask yourself questions from that verse. Is, is my walk um, in a manner, is my life in a manner worthy of the Lord? Is how I am living and what I am doing fully pleasing to God? Am I bearing fruit um, in every good work? Am I increasing in the knowledge of God? Take those four questions and honestly answer those to yourself. And <laughs> Confess that you're not doing those things as well as you should, because none of us are, and then beg and pray for God's grace and God's mercy to come in, show you where you're not doing that, and empower you to make those differences. Colossians 1.10, are you doing those things? Does your walk correspond with your belief? Does your practice correspond with your profession? And Peter's here did not, and that's why Paul has to take him to task in front of everyone. But listen that's not the only problem with Peter's behavior. It's not only affecting Peter. Right, look, at, look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Like Peter's actions spoke louder than his words. And as a leader, as someone that people looked to and respected, his behavior had significant influence on the behavior of others. Guys, people are watching. The world is watching. And as James says, the world cannot see your belief. There's nothing, you can't, there's no faith part of me. They, they, they can't sh I can't show them my faith. The world can't see your belief, right? but they can see your behavior. And they're going to make judgments about your belief based upon your behavior. And even more troublesome is the fact that they're going to make judgments about your God based upon your behavior. Right? We are... The church. We talked about it last week, what that meant. We are God's temple. We are His ambassadors. We are um, here specifically to reveal and to reflect God to the world. That is a high and a serious and a weighty calling. What is your life personally reflecting about God? Right? What is the life of this church corporately reflecting about God? Are we giving others an accurate picture of who He is? 
I, I've just been, I've been greatly convicted this week about the fact that the American church today, including myself, including us, we just seem to care very little about holiness. But you cannot read the Bible without being slapped in the face with how important um, holiness is to God, how important fruit and, and our lives and our walks are. God says, be holy as I am holy. In Hebrews 12, 14, he says, without holiness, we will never see God. Do you take that seriously? Because I'm not so sure that I do at times. True faith always demonstrates itself in fruit. Our walk is supposed to correspond with the truth of the gospel. Listen, of course we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But that faith that saves alone never stays alone. Grace always does something. Is it doing something in our lives personally and in the life of this church corporately? Now, I want to close and wrap up by kind of bringing things back um, to the foundation. I want to briefly remind ourselves on why this is important and what's really on the line here and make sure you're not, you're not hearing me wrong. Right? Well, what's on the line here with Peter's action and what we all often fail to do is it's there in verse 14. Right? What's at risk is the truth of the gospel. Right? The gospel was being compromised. Peter's actions were displaying a false gospel. Right? This, this false gospel that Peter gave to was this teaching that, that salvation belongs to the Lord but a little bit to us as well. Right? So, so Peter, he, he, he's, he's acting against what he believes. There's racism involved. There's, there's nationalism involved. He, he's putting his culture above their culture. How? How is this racism though? How is this nationalism? How is this him just simply not eating with the Gentiles? How does that give a picture of a false gospel. Because what Peter is in effect saying by his actions, he's saying to these people, unless you do these things, unless you add certain works like circumcision and obedience to, to the clean eating laws, I mean, unless you add those to what God has done, then you are inferior to me and thus you're not deserving of my fellowship. And the logical implication of that then is that you are also not then worthy of God's fellowship either. But man, do we not all do the exact same thing? Right. Tribalism is alive and well in the church today. Right? We all prefer to hang out with people that are just like us. People that agree with our personal preferences and standards. And what we do, almost without even knowing it, is we end up separating from and kind of implicitly then looking down um, at others who may think a little bit differently and act a little di differently than us. But when we do this, right, we, we are no better than Peter. And that's why I love Paul's boldness here. He goes straight after Peter. He goes right to his face to confront him. And man, that's, that's biblical right there. Right? There's no, no behind the back. Um, no, Paul shows up and he's like, he goes over to you know, Barnabas. Like, hey, man, you believe what Peter's doing? It's so terrible. How, do you, how could he ever do such a thing? That's, that's awful. Can you, can you believe this? No, Paul has a problem with Peter, and he goes directly to Peter, and he confronts him about it. That is exactly how Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 um, to deal with and to handle conflict. You have a problem, go directly to that person that you have a problem with in love and talk to them about it. And notice what Paul does. Notice how he does it. I love this. He doesn't say, Peter, well, I can't believe you. You're the worst. You're breaking all these rules. You're awful. 
No, he doesn't go after Peter with guilt. He doesn't confront just Peter's behavior. What does he say? He says, you've forgotten the gospel. Right? Paul's argument is basically, God did not have fellowship with you on the basis of your race and culture, so how can you then turn around and only have fellowship with others on the basis of their race and culture? If God did not enter into fellowship with you, Peter, because of anything you have done, how can you deny fellowship with others because of something that they have not done? Peter, you've, you've forgotten the gospel. You, you've forgotten that God has graciously welcomed you in Christ based upon no merits of your own. Paul confronts Peter with the gospel. He confronts Peter with grace. Since God has been so loving and so merciful and welcoming to us, then we are to be the same way towards others, even others who are very different um, from us. Anything else displays a false gospel. And there's, there's no life, there's, there's no salvation in anything but the one true biblical gospel. And just so we make sure we're all on the same page, what is that gospel, right? It's this message that, that Paul is so desperate to protect. It is this good news that though we are wicked, vile, spiritually dead sinners, unable to do anything about it, unable to even desire anything to be done about it for us, we may be pardoned and forgiven and have fellowship with God anyways, based upon nothing that we have done but based solely on the work of Jesus Christ in our place, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Guys, we were rebels. We were slaves to our sins. We were enemies of God, owing an eternally large debt for our sin. And the gospel is that God himself has entered into our story. He has come into the picture in the person of Jesus Christ, and he pays that debt for us. He does for us what we could have never done for ourselves. And he doesn't do it because we're pretty good or nice people or because we're desirable in any way or deserve his mercy in any way. No, he does it solely because he is good and he is kind and he is merciful. He does everything for us when we deserve nothing. He saved us and he does it all for us. That's the gospel, right? Anything else, any other addition, no matter how subtle, is a deadly counterfeit. And that's why Paul's actions were so dangerous, or Peter's actions were so dangerous and so in need of immediate correction. His actions were saying, to be worthy of me, to be worthy of God, you've got to do something. You've got to add something. But the gospel is that we add nothing to Christ. Right? It's, it's all His grace. It's all His work for us. Right? And so don't get the order wrong. Don't forget the gospel and everything that Paul has said before this and come to what I have just said and be like, well, I've got to really clean up my act and get everything together and I've got to be a good and moral and perfect person so that I can be saved. That's not at all what Paul is saying here. He says, grace first because you have been saved, then you should be living like this in response. You flip that order and you're killing yourself. You're shooting yourself in the foot. Right? You can't clean up your act first. You can't be a good person. You can't um, be holy as God is holy. You can't walk in these ways that we're called to walk unless God first comes in by His grace and rescues you and saves you and redeems you. His work first and then we must respond. Right? But all I'm trying to point out is if there has been no response, if there has been no fruit or no growth or no walking, then we're, we're giving evidence that maybe there has been no grace in the first place. So look at your life. Check your life. How are you walking? How are you living? 
Right? But the good news is that it all starts, he does it all. It starts with him. He gives us the grace. He, he rescues us. It's his work for us. And because that is the case, we can take comfort in the fact that though the faithful can fall, right, that fall we know will never be final because true faith, due to the glorious grace of God, always produces fruit. It always leads to life because he is the guarantee behind it. It's dependent on him and not us. So though we can fall, we have this great promise and this great hope that by God's grace, our faith will always produce fruit. Right? There is forgiveness um, at the cross for even the worst um, of our falls and of our sins and of our stumbles. So let's close by going and thanking Him um, for that grace and that mercy. Father, uh, we come to You um, as sinners. Father, we come to You confessing our unworthiness for anything um, that you have um, done um, for us. Father, I come to you um, confessing my inconsistency. Father, I feel a whole lot like Peter um, a whole lot of times um, in my life, uh, Lord. But I thank you that you are faithful. Um, you are the faithful one, um, Lord, who is promises to preserve um, his people. Um, so, Father, I pray that we would feel the tension um, of this um, by grace, through faith, it is all your work. But at the same time, um, Lord, that you call us to seek and to pursue and to strive for holiness. Father, I pray that grace would never become an excuse for us to sit back um, and to, to indulge ourselves in sin. Um, Father, I pray that we would never use grace as an excuse to, to sin all the more. Um, by no means, um, Lord. Father, I pray that we would um, use your grace and be motivated by what you have done for us um, to work and to strive um, greatly in response. Father, I pray that you would give us a heart that hates our sin as much as you hate our sin. Father, that we would love and desire um, holiness as much as you love and desire holiness. Father, I pray that we would just care about that in, in this place. I know that you care about our lives and what we do and how we live. And Father, I pray that we would care as well. Father, put your finger on our hearts, on those little places, um, Lord, where we um, are like Peter. Um, Father, where we are um, regularly um, giving in to sin, where we are slaves to that sin. Um, Father, the first thing we need is awareness um, of where that is in our lives. Um, we can't fight the battle if we don't know where the battle is being fought, um, Lord. So show us um, where. Convict us of our need um, for that change. Pour grace and mercy into our hearts. Grant faith and repentance, um, Lord, and empower us um, to fight um, that sin and to even begin to at least desire um, to fight that sin um, for your glory. Father, help us to do that. We cannot do it on our own. Father, we can only do it with you. Father, we can only do that in the context of, of community, um, in a church. And Father, that's why we need this. That's why we need um, each other. So, Father, I pray and ask that you would continue to knit um, this family, this body, closer and closer together. So that we would not just do church together on Sundays from 11 to 12, um, but we would do life um, together 24-7. Um, Lord, we would walk um, with you um, side by side together, um, working and learning together, falling together and pulling each other up, um, Lord. Father, we need each other. We thank you for giving us the church. We thank you for your perfect um, plan. Uh, I pray that you would use um, these people, commit them um, to the cause of discipleship, to love and serve um, one another, um, Lord, for your glory. Father, we are great sinners, but you are, uh, are so much, um, you are a greater Savior. Lord, and so we cling um, to that. Uh, your grace is our only hope, um, Lord. And so, far, Father, use that grace to, to enact great change in our lives. Um, Father, we thank you. We love you. Um, help us to love you better. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.